Um, thank you very much for, for staying, for choosing to come back and listen to us discussing the themes that have emerged from, um, from the play. Um, unless you've been hiding in a cave for the last few years, we are all familiar with the atrocities perpetrated by uh, the so-called Islamic State group. But, but one of the things that, is, that feels particularly important about what uh, Gillian Slover and Nicholas Kent have done here is that they've, they've created through the other work that they've done with, with Guantanamo and, and the riots and so on, they've created theatre as a, as a public forum, a space in which all of us together deliberate a matter of, of what feels like very urgent significance. Um, and so we're going to try and continue that a little bit and hope that you will also get involved. I have uh, with me on the, on the stage, well, is it a stage? Yes, we're all, we're all kind of on a level here. Um, four people who um, have connections with this subject in, in, in profound ways. Um, to my far right is uh, Tofail Chowdhury, who is a barrister. He was depicted in tonight's uh, play and watched himself, I think, for the first time, <laughs> which must have been very odd. Um, I'm not going to read out the whole paragraph. It's a waste of time. You've all been handed these bits of paper um, about what these people do. Um, next to him is um, Jill Tufi, who is associate head teacher of Mulberry School for Girls in Tower Hamlets. Um, and next to her is uh, Nusrat Hassan, who is a year 13 uh, pupil at Mulberry School uh, for Girls. That means that you are in the sixth form. Yes. Last year, about to yes, sit your A-levels. Very, very good of you to be here <laughs> this evening <laughs> instead of studying at home. And, um, and, to, and, to, my, and to my left, uh, uh, Nafis Hamid, who is a research fellow at uh, Artists International, which um, he's just told me is an international consortium uh, which looks at specifically issues to do with uh, neuroscience and um, ethnographic field research interviews specifically to do with radicalization and extremism. Okay, so uh, first of all, let's let's start. Um, I, I think the file, it would be interesting just to get your impressions of something that you were so closely involved in. Gillian and Nick interviewed you, which is why you, you were represented in this play. Just tell us a little bit about how that felt just to see yourself and then your impressions of what you saw tonight. <laughs> <laughs> um, it was, I mean, it was, it was great <laughs> to see myself on stage. Um, it was also strange because I know quite a lot of the people involved in the debate and the discussion in this area to see them on stage as well. And I thought, I mean, Shiraz looked far trendier than he really is. Um, <laughs> I was quite jealous. I was like, God, he's, he's the one who looks really trendy. Yeah, this. he's got the good clothes. <laughs> yeah. So there's all, um, but I thought, I mean, the play, the play was amazing. I was really, I mean, I was moved towards at the end there. It was incredibly powerful. And I think they did a tremendous job of just montaging the whole thing together into quite a, I mean, it, it, it's complicated, but to be able to show, provide a narrative, but still show that it is complicated and there are so many different facets. You know, I thought they did a tremendous job. And actually, perhaps the, 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 the biggest takeaway from all of this is that there isn't one single reason why young people around the world and, and Europe, European countries in particular, are willing to join Islamic State. I, I, I wonder, um, Nafis, what, what you made of, of the heart of the play, the emotional heart of the play, being the stories of the mothers. Because what we're trying to figure out here is why these young people go, but the prism through which we're learning about it during the course of the play is 
the relationship between these mothers and their children. Yeah, no, it was extremely powerful. And uh, I mean, I was tearing up at the end because I spent a lot of time talking to the actual fighters who are there in Syria or Iraq or who want to go, or who have been in prison trying to go. And so I'm s I, I've gotten so used to hearing their point of view and I do talk to the families a little bit. But I mean, it's, it's, it's like a 90-10 split in terms of 90% like of the time I'm talking to the actual fighters. So to see the, you know, the mother's reactions and just right there in front of me, it, was, it hit me very powerfully. But what also I think drives home is that uh, the, the part that hit me the hardest, the part that made me think was, one of the mothers said was, um, I feel like maybe I failed, it was my fault, I could have done something more. And what's hard for me hearing that is because I don't want her to feel that way. At the same time, I know the conversations I'm having with people who are building prevent programs in France or Germany or in other countries is that the, the family is the solution, if anybody is the solution. And so it's this strange balance between going to the families and saying, yes, you're the solution, but I don't want you to feel any guilt or pain for your children having gone. Let's talk a little bit more about that then. So if, if, if you genuinely feel that it's the families that are the solution, how, how can that be done? Because so much of what the character that you're talking about, Yasmin, she, she's talking about how she blames herself, but she also recognises that he did not fit in where he was. And yeah. that in fact, conversely, he was quite happy when he left. Yeah. I mean, that's another big point is that you know, people see... ISIS is this horrible, depraved uh, organization, which it is, but it's also a joyous movement. And that's the thing that people don't get, is that it's, you, you can't have something with this kind of spiritual force if there isn't some sort of transcendent and sacred uh, uh, movement, current <coughs> underlying it, and brotherhood and joy that, that, that's motivating these people. And I talk to them on Skype uh, when, I'm, when I'm in Europe. Maybe they're, they're playing it up a little bit, but they tell me that they have so much meaning over there and, and they are moved um, by being there. Th that, that's a really, really important point. Tufal, I, want, I wonder what, what you make of, of that and how much that resonates with, with the kind of research that, that you do. Because there is, there is this idea that we, we tend to lose. And in the play, the, the priest talks about the motivation to join a group like this as cultish. And, and yet there clearly is a kind of solid motivation for the individuals, even if, they're, even if they want to leave something that makes them feel dislocated from wherever the society that they've, they've come from, what makes them want to go is something positive. It's not something that is ne necessarily destructive in their minds. Yeah, and I think that that sense of finding somewhere where you belong, so it's part of that searching for an identity, part of looking for where you can be part of a group and I think that's that's common to all young people and in many ways you know it's no different from joining a gang um, when you're in the streets and you don't have a sense of belonging anywhere else you join a group that makes that makes you feel accepted that makes you feel like you're you're a value I think that's the attraction initially as, as I think as the as in, in the play as they showed that this sense of being worth being worthy and having a sense of belonging having a sense of worth and that's the and if that's what they're not getting and that's the crucial thing. If they're not getting that in their everyday life, then that makes them far more vulnerable. 
Can, can I just go? I, I was just going to ask Nusra, just come back in just a second. Nusra, I just wanted to ask you about when, when Tafal talks about a sense of identity, the, the other really powerful uh, moment in the play for me, or moments in the play, were when the six formers were speaking about, about them trying to make sense of their place in the world in terms of how other people perceive them. I, I, wonder, I wonder what you made of that. I found that, uh, again, a very interesting part of the play as well because I'm a young student myself in Dar Hamlets. So, um, again, if, it, if I'm linking it back to what Tufiala was saying about how students and young people are trying to find that sense of belonging, that's what I think my school, Mulberry, where I come from, and that's what all the other students will probably feel like, and they do, because I know this through our discussions, uh, we have this cr uh, system of sisterhood going on in our school. So as well as the strong uh, curriculum, we have our own stance on um, feminism through our women's education. We have our um, abilities to be, we have our um, chance to be open and discuss uh, these global issues. And because of that, we are able to be in this sisterhood and therefore, you know, feel op like comfortable with each other to discuss certain things. Nafis, what were you going to say? Yeah, I mean, I think that's important, the brotherhood, the sisterhood, the sense of belonging. But that's, 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 that's not enough because, in fact, a lot of these people have been part of gangs and that wasn't enough for them. And part of what they're rejecting of Western society is this fact that gangs or, or pursuing any career path is purely materialistic. That what we have to offer them on the West is you get a better job, you get more stability, you get more security, your life is materially better. What the Islamic State or Nusra or other jihadist groups are offering them is, is, is the ability to be part of a revolution. And you cannot forget about that spiritual, that transcendent, that political revolutionary element. And you might even argue that brotherhood and sisterhood is part of the pathway to radicalization. These guys are radicalizing in groups. Look, if you look at Molenbeek and the environmental factors of Molenbeek, there's nothing in there that's pushing people towards radicalization. I reject Molenbeek's uh, analysis that there's push and pull factors. You see, for every uneducated person, poor person, petty criminal you can show me, I can show you dozens of people who are doing very, very well in life. In Canada, everyone talks about Damien Clermont. He was a guy with mental illness. He was rejected by his peers. He felt lonely. He was depressive. He was suicidal. He went and joined the Islamic State. Nobody talks about his best friend, Salman Ashrafi, who had it all. He was married, good job, prominent family, educated, had a great career path ahead of him. He also left and joined the Islamic State. Um, the best predictor that we have, if you're going to go or not go, is your tight-knit group of friends. Okay, so uh, basically in, in Molenbeek in Belgium, which has the highest per capita foreign fighter rate out of any Western country, one out of three foreign fighters were directly recruited by two people, Faoud Belkassam or Khalid Zarkani. Now those people who were directly recruited by them then went on to go ahead and recruit their friends, making up the majority of recruits from Belgium. So we tend to talk about things like marginalization or criminal neighborhoods and all these very broad, large topics about identity crisis when it's really just friends recruiting friends. And they're using their pre-established brotherhood connections and sisterhood connections to pull their friends with them. Jill Tufi, as, as somebody who is involved in the education system, there, there is so much of the, the connections that children, young people make that takes place at school. 
to what extent do you feel that it's the greatest challenge that, that faces educators when you are f you're confronted by governments in many countries who have some expectation that you will be complicit with them when it comes to taking part in the prevent programs in particular in, the, in this country but but also that you have a, a, a very different agenda as educators that, that that may not be something that you want to be complicit with I think that's a really interesting question so I think I think that's right I think I'm really interested in what you're saying about uh, friendships and relationships because I think that is the key actually um, so um, uh, Nusrath and I are from Mulberry School, which is in Tower Hamlets. The school is, uh, serves the poorest borough and uh, the most socially deprived community in the country. We have, because of our catchment area, we have uh, f almost 1,500 girls on roll. And they are all, 97% uh, are British Bangladeshi. Uh, we have 76% of our girls on pupil premium, which was the old free school meals money. Um, and yet our school is really, really successful. So we're in the top 100% of schools in the country for uh, progress. You know, we're in the top 3% of, of schools for our EBAC results. So it, the school is very, very successful. And we, we talk about the school being successful because of the relationships. So the relationships between... The, our, our, our school and our community, our parents, our parent liaison officer is here this evening, Sabina, which is fantastic. Um, and so I think, you know, there is, there are conflicting <coughs> things going on. So there is the Home Office Prevent strategy, there's advice from the Department for, for Education, there's Tower Hamlet's work. But what we do at Mulberry really is try to create, I think, as Nusrath was talking about, a kind of a sisterhood of relationships. That, and I think that's the key for us, really. Nusrat, I, I wonder what, what, you, what you thought about the three girls who went from the school in Bethnal Green. You know, what, what was going through your mind when you, when you started seeing those reports and seeing those, the, the now kind of very, very familiar photograph of the three girls going through the kind of CCTV camera pictures of, of them going through some security checkpoint? Well, as a human, firstly, I was devastated. And I'm sure most of the people here felt the same way as well because it's not, you know, you don't hear about this all the time and it's not something you want to be hearing. But then also when we discuss the situation and the political situation right now in school, all of us used to see it as something that happened away from home. So we used to talk about it and discuss it, but we never really knew how it would affect us. But it did affect us in terms of Islamophobia was on the Islamophobic attacks was on the rise. But in terms of actually seeing how the effects are bringing to us at home didn't come until when the three girls left. And that's when I remember during that period of time, all of us, um, all of us in our school, when we were coming to school, everyone would be like, oh, did you, because of those three girls that left, everyone's like getting those stares in the uh, streets and getting those odd mutterings. And I personally had them as well. I personally had um, people on the train as well just being something like muttering under the breath saying, oh, foreigner, go home or something like that. Um, and it's not nice hearing that. So I think as a human being, and you know, being virtuous, I think those characteristics are something that we all have in common, and therefore we should, you know, it's, it's, I think the way I felt is something that nearly everyone should feel, so I don't understand why I should feel any different, really.
I suppose it's partly to do, the, the, the motivation for the question was really to do with um, your age rather than the fact that you're a, a Muslim, to be honest. It's about mm -hmm. girls of the age of 15 mm -hmm. wanting to do this, and you have mm -hmm. been 15. Mm -hmm. and, and, I, and I suppose it's that, that connection with being a young person <laughs> mm -hmm. that, that, that makes me think, well, I've got a daughter who's 15, right? I mean, the idea of my daughter making that choice one morning, getting up and thinking, right, I'm, I'm off to Syria. Mm -hmm. You know, that, that's, a, that's a tough thing to get, get your head around. Um, th th this idea of, um, of the potency of the movement that, that um, Nafis is talking about, the, the, the attraction of it being a revolution that you're a part of, how do, how do governments counter this because that's really that you know the, the the play looks at that as a as an absolute challenge for society how, how does how does any government counter the narrative that is clearly resonating and has an a, a visceral potency for for young people i think some of what charlie winter said in the play about the first part of what government has to do is to make sure that it doesn't play into what's wanted which is an overreaction and a further alienation and further creating a, se a sense in which people feel like they're being victimised or that people feel like they're mm. being um, watched or surveilled. And I think that's the first thing, is that you, you, if you overreact, then you um, play into what exactly is, is required. But then on the other hand, if you have young people going away, you know, the other, the other response would be, well, you know, we should overreact. So that's the danger. But the, the challenge and the difficulty is that for a lot of um, there's a lot of, lot of Muslims, particularly young Muslims, the, their primary experience of counterterrorism legislation or policy is through what I'd call the false positive. So it's the innocent person who's been stopped. That's the primary way in which people experience it because they put themselves in that position. So if you remember after 7-7 when Jean-Charles de Menezes was killed, so many people, that Muslims felt that could have been me. And it's that sense of vulnerability of feeling actually I could be um, the victim of, or I, I could face um, counterterrorism measures being played out in the wrong way. And that's the, that's the danger, because that, that adds to the sense of um, not only are you, are you vulnerable as, an, as a person living in London who, who may be caught up in the terrorist attack, but in addition to this, you face the backlash from the wider um, public when it comes to Islamophobia, and you're also the focus of counterterrorism measures. And so you're the one who's likely to be stopped and searched. You're the one who's likely to have the Schedule 7 stop at the airport. You're the one who's likely to um, have to be careful about what you tell your kids. I have conversations with my daughter saying, you know, that science experiment we did at the weekend about explosions, maybe not mention it when you go into school about what you did <laughs> at the weekend. <laughs> Because, I mean, I, not, not because you don't want to, you don't want the hassle for, of dealing with all of yeah, that. Yeah, of course. I mean, Jill, to what extent are you, as as an edu as an educator, aware of of the potential impact on social cohesion inside your schools in the immediate aftermath of of an atrocity? Yes, we're really, really aware of it. So, it's the responsibility of all schools to make sure that they address the divisions in the community, whatever those divisions are, because. A sense of injustice and any sense that you of, of unfairness is going to create a division and that is the kind of behaviour and sense and feeling that is going to lead to extremist behaviour. I mean, we, we, have a, we have a lot of um, extremist behaviour to deal with in Tower Hamlets. We have you know, the English Defence League, we have the National Front, you know, so you know, we're talking about all kinds of extremist behaviour here really. Um, and so 
as a school, um, you know, our principles are really that that's what we need to address and we address it through an outstanding education. So pupils leaving school feeling confident and fulfilled with a whole repertoire of skills to be able to engage in British public and community life is our prevent strategy, if you like. We don't really talk about prevent very much in the school. All our teachers are trained, of course. Um, but, but it is interesting, isn't it, that mistakes, mistakes are made. I mean, there are, there are some terrible examples of teachers of feeling, however much training they've had, yeah. that there's an overreaction or a potential overreaction, like with the boy who, yes. who writes a about a terraced house, house and, and, you know, the police are called yeah, and sure. so on. Um, it, it is really, it's a huge amount of responsibility to place on, on teachers who have, you know, some very core things to deal with already and not the reason they go into that profession yeah there is a lot of fear around it i think that's absolutely right so there's a lot of fear around you know if you are a muslim if you're a young muslim if you live in tower hamlets it's an entirely different experience to being white in tower hamlets it, it really is and yes you're right it is a huge responsibility to take to, to put on to teachers and i think how we deal with that is to have a school where uh, we create a safe space so it's okay to not always know the answer to something. So, you know, I think all of the senior staff in the school and staff who've been there a long time are very confident about having conversations around controversial issues. And other staff um, feel like they know where they could go to, to talk to someone. I think, you know, that is right. And, and those stories around, yes, that young boy who wrote about, I'm sure people know, you know he, he wrote a story about um, how he lived in a, a terrorist house sure people have heard that and what he actually meant was a terrorist house and he was reported to the to the police and so you know though yeah those mistakes do happen and they're not helpful but you can see in an atmosphere of fear that you know that that's how things are really and actually Nusrat had a very funny story mm -hmm. that she was telling me on the way here just to add to that yeah um just before I came here like I think this was two days ago I was just sitting in a room fully filled with my cousins um it was just a family gathering and I was discussing how I was uh, how, how I was coming here and I was watching a, uh, I was going to watch a play about uh, Islamic State and the women and you know the, the people that who've left uh, to become the fighters um, and before I could actually consciously talk about it, because I know I'll be using words like Islamic State and terrorists and terrorism, I was consciously looking around the room to see where the little kids were because I knew they were like in reception in year one and year two. So they're like, what, six, seven years old? And I know at that young age, little boys and little girls are attention seeking, as we can say, um, or they do anything, or when they go to school, they'd be like, oh yeah, my, uh, if I say, for example, um, oh yeah, I'm going to be talking about the terrorists um, that's happening in Syria, um, they might go and say, oh, my sister is, you know, um, a terrorist or something like that. And I can't, like, because of the prevent strategy and everything that's happening right now, I can't afford, well, I, I wouldn't want anyone thinking, something wrong and therefore so you're very conscious of the language you use mm -hmm, all the time definitely i have to be um otherwise because i don't want him picking up words like terrorist and terrorism otherwise he'd be flagged mar like marked as well and be you know stigmatized stigmatized can i just yeah, also of add course. just to add some statistics to to what's going on with the channel and the prevent program 80 percent of people who are recommended to the channel program are deemed no further action upon the first meeting 
So only 20% of people is anyone in, in any official position feel that this is, this is someone that we have to even just have a second meeting with. Now, how many of those people actually need to go through the entire program and have something built around them with mentors and teachers and family therapy? We don't even know the numbers. And I think it's gonna be scary when we find out just how small it actually is. And about, f and so I'm speaking in percentages, it's about 4,000 people, I think, in 2015 were, uh, were, were recommended onto that first meeting for channel. Uh, so you have, well, 3,200 people were just, didn't even, were just basically felt like they were probably harassed. And then you had 800 people who maybe needed a second meeting. And we don't know probably just how, it could just be double digits in the end, mm -hmm. who actually went through the program. And we have no idea what, what the end result was because there doesn't seem to be any systematic evaluation of these programs. It's not evidence-based policy making. And even if there is systematic evaluation, there's no transparency. We don't actually know what those numbers look like. Given your understanding of the the justifications, the reasons why these young men on the whole are, are wanting to go and join Islamic State. What do you make of the, the big picture, the government's responses to this? When, 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 when Tafail talks about Charlie Winter's um, analysis, which, which feels to me to be the kind of the soul of, of the piece, you know, you're kind of left with Charlie's words ringing in your ears. Um, Th this idea that, that governments have a tendency, a knee-jerk tendency to overreact. What is the counter-narrative? How is it possible to create a counter-narrative that is even halfway effective, given that we know it's not really effective at the moment? Yeah. Well, two things. One, uh, the idea about not falling into the, that playing into the hands of the terrorists. That's not just something that Charlie Winter or Ware inferring. ISIS has been clear that that's their strategy. And the early 2015, they published a 10-page editorial in their English language magazine called Dabik, called The Extinction of the Gray Zone, where they said that most Muslims are, are, do not fall in this black or white category of completely with, uh, uh, with the infidels or completely for the Islamic State. The vast majority fall in this gray zone where they sort of don't know which side they really fall on. They haven't really thought about these questions deeply. And their whole strategy is to extinguish that gray zone, which is to carry out soft target attacks in Western countries so that way they secure their borders, they help more radical policies get passed, so that way Muslims feel more marginalized and persecuted in the Western world, and this will push them into the black-robed embrace of the Islamic State. They've been clear that that's their strategy. They've put that out to the world. Um, in terms of counter-narratives, I don't, the, the, even the word counter-narrative is sort of problematic because different people mean different things when they use the word counter-narrative. Mass media counter-narratives that have been used in France and the US, in the US it was a program called Think Again, Turn Away, in France it was called Stop Jihadism, <coughs> have been a complete joke. I mean, it's basically 45 to 60 year old bureaucrats in Washington DC putting out mostly negative messaging on Twitter and we all know how much 16-year-olds really care about what you know, <laughs> middle-aged people in DC think. <laughs> I mean, they're not, they're not even following these Twitter accounts. It's not, they're not even looking at it. And uh, so, one, you can't have mass media messaging because, as I was saying, these people are radicalized by their friends. So the messaging that's pulling them in is tailor-made. Uh, when you look at you know, the Skype conversations or the records of people who are radicalized, sometimes we get access to these computers and we can see what they're saying to them. 
uh, it's, it, they're looking for some grievance, some problem in this, in this person's life, something that really matters to them, and then really just harping on that and trying to connect what they're doing in Syria, Iraq, with, 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 with what matters to that person. So first of all, you need something very tailor-made. Uh, you need the friends and families to be conduits of, of that message. And more importantly, it shouldn't be a counter-narrative. It should be an alternative narrative. I mean, we all know from just having any moral or political argument, you attack someone's values head on, they're going to close off to you. We have evidence that it actually backfires. We have neuroscience evidence, actually, of Islamist radicals in Barcelona that at the level of the brain, when they hear their community disagrees with their sacred values, moral outrage centers of the brain go activating very strongly. So this is only going to further marginalize uh, the Islamist radicals from the broader community if you're using imams or so forth to be conduits of a message and if you're attacking the message directly. Instead, you need to, you need to find a message, but more importantly, an, not only an alternate messaging, but counter-engagement. Because in the end, these guys care about action orientation. These are not static ideas that you just passively believe in. If you accept these ideas, you do something about it. You get up off your seat, you carry out an attack, you go to Syria, and people want that action orientation. Most people I talk to, they can't actually even defend the values who are currently in Syria. According to ISIS's leaked docs, 22,000 leaked docs of the 23 questions they ask people when they come in, the majority of the people who show up at Islamic State borders are ranked as having a poor understanding of Sharia. These people have gone there to go kill themselves for something that they, they self-admit to not knowing much about. So the action comes first, the values come second. So you find a way to, f to get them engaged in something that captures their imagination, that activates their dreams, that emotionally moves them, and then you, what you'll find is that the values will sort of come to match the but, actions. But what you're, what you're outlining is, is a very, very sophisticated message that they have thought through very, very clearly, and yet governments and politicians around the world have a very binary view of this problem. It's us against them. Yeah. And I, I just wonder to what extent governments are listening to uh, or taking on board the kind of research that, that, you're, that you're sharing with us this evening, because it, it just it feels as though that is happening in, along parallel <laughs> lines. They listen. I mean, I'm, I'm, I have meetings. I'm going to have meetings with many of the people who were depicted in the play today. Tomorrow I'm meeting them, I'm meeting the French Prime Minister next week. So they listen, they have the meetings, they're open to the ideas. But their criticism to me, which is a fair criticism, which is, okay, how do you come up with practical policy from, that, from those ideas? Those are great general themes and principles, but in the end we need to practically uh, implement it. To which I can say, look, I, you know your country better than I do. You know the kind of uh, the bureaucratic system that you have available, the avenues you have to actually uh, implement this. I can't actually tell you in Singapore and Indonesia how to actually go about implementing this, but I think increasingly they're becoming open to the idea of it. Whether they implement it, I don't know. Duval, you wanted to say something yeah, about I mean, this. I, th I think one of the things is to look at how much of the work can be done outside of the scope of prevent. I think putting it into prevent is really dangerous because it securitizes the whole thing. And so, th like, um, they showed a clip of David Cameron's speech on British values. Now, promoting British values, whatever they mean, within citizenship education seems to me 
a perfectly legitimate thing for the state to want to do, that's fine. But to do that in the context of saying we're dealing with radicalization mm -hmm. means that you're talking about you're talking to British Muslims only. You're saying that you're the ones who lack these values. And I think that's when it becomes far more problematic. I, I have nothing. I have no problems with um, discussing values in the context of citizenship education. I think it's far more problematic when it's just narrowly focused in the context of um, counter-terrorism, because then it just becomes about Muslims. And what happens, sorry, what I was going to say, what happens is um, you look at issues of values and then differences become defining. So you suddenly say, well, if there are any differences in the values that we hold, that you don't hold, that defines who you are, and that's what makes you different. And the last thing you want to do is to create one more thing, one more reason why people should feel alienated. But it has already polarised people inside the Muslim community in this country. Those who have chosen to engage with the Prevent programme are very often referred to in really derogatory terms as house Muslims. You know, and I, I, I thought I would never hear that kind of vocabulary. And I've seen it on Twitter accounts where people are, talk, you know, that people are, are, are talking about Muslims who've decided to be complicit. They see it as a complicity with the government and and it goes to the heart of what you're saying which is about the securitization of these issues and and, and i wonder what you know what do you do as a teacher when when you've got a a, a, a sixth former who comes to you that that might feel really really dislocated and not certain about his or her place in the world mm. well that's the work of schools and i think I think schools are the places where civilizations are created and I think that the work we're talking about needs to be done in schools. And I think we do offer an alternative narrative, I think we do. And I think the, the way in which our curriculum is, is created, all of our extracurricular activities, all of our work around um, global citizenship, all of our work around uh, pupil voice, student voice, uh, work around it is your rightful place, it is Nusrath's rightful place to be here on the stage at the National Theatre, that is her rightful place. It, it is, you know, it's, it, I think it is about, my, my feeling about it is it is about uh, not being disenfranchised. I know you're saying that, that you know, kind of a spiritual draw and an, an excitement and, a, you know, I kind of see that, but I do think f it is also about a sense of belonging and, and uh, a, a creation of uh, having a stake in British society, I really do, or well, that's my experience anyway every day. And so to answer your question, if a young person is struggling with whatever in their identity, at Mulberry we have a huge team, we have a really, really strong pastoral team. So, you know, your tutor, your teacher, I mean, Nusrath is better, better qualified to talk about this, so you know I'm not making it up. Um, you, know, there are you know, teachers are very well we're, we're very sensitive, we're trained, you know, the, the, the girls in the sixth form would certainly um, notice, notice any kind <coughs> of, um, uh, anything they feel anxious about and would report that to a teacher. So it's in the relationship, it's back to relationships, I think. It's the relationship, the dialogue, um, the ability to be able to help young people make sense of where they're going in life. It, I think it's all of those things. And all of the, the things in the play about identity that kept coming up, I think they are crucial. I mean, interesting, I think it's your character um, <laughs> was, I think, was, was talking about... Well, he's um, character him. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah. <laughs> I'm already confused. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you, not your character, okay. yeah. yeah. <laughs> he was dressed differently. Yeah. Was, um, you know, the, the sort of, the, you know, the, the prevent strategy and the ways in which we're able to identify people at risk of, of radicalisation are how teenagers are, you know, so they start to work really hard, great, you know, or they, um, 
you know, they become very devout, and very religious. That's up to, you know, all of those things are not defining features of someone being radicalised or in this really unhelpful language of prevent pre-criminal. So presumably we're all pre-criminal, unless any of you are criminals, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> we're all <laughs> pre-criminal. I mean, what is that about, pre-criminal? Um, so, yes, and I think, the, so, uh, the, you know, in Tar Hamlets, and so I'm imagining in, in other places as well, the one different identifying feature is that you know someone who has been to Syria. You have a connection. And so what we have to do, if we are serious about, about this, is we have to find different connections. So, you know, if it's in relationship and connection and someone you know um, and your friend, okay, let's make sure those relationships are safe. We've kind of run out of time. I was just going to say what an eloquent way in, in which to, to end our particular discussion. It was never going to be a, a discussion where we were going to uh, find uh, solutions. But um, I, I, I study this subject quite a lot and I've learnt a huge amount this evening. So my thanks to Tafal Chowdhury, Nafis Hamid, Nusrat Hassan and Jill Tufi. And to you all. Thank you very much. <laughs>